word of the Lord this morning. This comes from the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 14 through 32. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him into the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. The word of the Lord. 25, 30 years ago, it was uh, all the rage to read Scott Peck. Does anybody remember that name, Scott Peck? He wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. You got that one? Okay. Some of you remember that. It was actually the number one bestseller for about 20 years, uh, New York Times bestseller. And uh, it really is, it it really was a good book. And I've, I've got... This was the, just to kind of show you, this was the, 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 what the cover looked like on the one I read. And that, that uh, uh, phrase up on the left there is his famous opener. Uh, can we, let's just say it together. Life is difficult. And ain't it the truth, right? Can you, if you don't say amen to anything else today, you know that's true. And, but his point was that uh, we become mature by accepting that and living into it and allowing the work that comes to us uh, in the difficulties to have its way and we become more mature. And if we resist that statement, we will be stuck in a place of immaturity. So, uh, good word. And then he ostensibly, and because I say that because I don't know for sure, became a Christian and then wrote a second book called People of the Lie. And that was my cover on that one. Uh, also a bestseller, not as popular, but uh, very profound what he has to say in that book. And re- I, I put my little synopsis on the left that the, the real evil is to deny that evil is real. And that's kind of the theme of that book. And particularly in people who don't realize that evil is always 
that far away at least from their heart or in their heart and they deny that and they are the most evil people around us they're dangerous and so you have narcissists and all the rest he goes into in that book but it's really for all of us to not be a person of the lie a person of the lie is to deny that evil has any sway over you you're you're lying to yourself evil is real now scott peck uh was an interesting guy in that he uh was, had such profound insight. I mean, he wrote other books too, and I, I would recommend them, but also he was a very flawed person, and you know, not surprising, but a best-selling author on human relationships. His own family, he had multiple affairs, and he was estranged from his children, and he died about 10 years ago. But that, the, the reason I have some respect for him is that he actually wrote honestly about his failures. Um, so anyway, take all that with a caveat, and there's an irony there that this great author with all the insight had his own uh, set of problems. All right, so what does this have to do with Jesus? Well, <laughs> here we go. Jesus is uh, on this journey from the north of Israel, where Peter proclaimed him the Messiah, and then last week we saw Mount, on Mount Hermon, uh, where he was transfigured and, and glorified, and now he's on his way south, and um, he's going to Jerusalem. Life is difficult. When you walk towards Jerusalem, you're walking towards suffering and death, and he knows it. So it has everything to do with Jesus. And then, all on the way, he confronts evil. Evil is real. We find that in the scriptures. So... Uh, And then uh, for us today, uh, if we aren't clear that life is difficult or, you know, we'll be stuck in immaturity in places of just stuck. And if we don't believe that evil is real, then we will be stuck in our naivete in regard to either the world at large or in our own hearts. And it's not a good place. So uh, Jesus has some words for us who are on the way ourselves. We're also on the way. That's the, the word in the Greek is hodos, which we'll run into a number of times in chapters 9 and 10 of Mark's gospel. And this is where he's on the way to, Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, the, it's a time when Jesus is teaching his disciples. So unlike the first half of Mark's gospel, he's focusing in, at least in these two chapters, on uh, zeroing in on his disciples and teaching them. So let me read what was read for you, just to verify that at the end, it says in verse 30, that they left that place and they passed through Galilee, which is that lake up there. They passed through Galilee and Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. So you have this kind of secrecy theme that's going on in Mark. But the reason in this case is because he was teaching his disciples. Everything that he wanted people to hear right now was only for the disciples to hear. He's focusing and narrowing his... And we are disciples. I, I hope you consider yourself a disciple uh, as we come to this this morning because he has some things to teach us. And he wants to teach us that the kingdom of God, thank God, it only comes through faith, prayer, and the Spirit. It does not come through politics, uh, whatever, military... Uh, the kingdom of God does not... Those are, those are temptations that we have, to think that it might come that way. The kingdom of God comes through faith, prayer, and the Spirit. And that's, uh, as you walk on this way, on this life is difficult journey, the road less traveled, we need to be in faith, prayer, and the Spirit. 
All right, so here's our outline. We're going to borrow three of the sayings that we find in the text and kind of work our way through these We're, and then find ourselves in there. We are always uh, looking for God's word to us. And I really believe this morning, if you allow him to, he will speak to you. What are you arguing about is the first question that Jesus asks of the text. We'll see it here in a minute. And then there's that phrase that's kind of a rhetorical, sarcastic, if you can is Jesus has come back to the man who asks Jesus if he can. And then that, that uh, uh, what I would call wonderful line, I believe, help my unbelief. Isn't that, and that's a good news text right there. I believe, help my unbelief. And I think all of us can relate to that one. All right, so um, they're arguing. And Jesus, we remember, uh, let me read that for you. He uh, it says, he comes down the mountain and he says, what are you arguing with them about? And if we were to read the previous uh, text there, it was, they had come down from the mountaintop experience. So uh, Jesus had been glorified. It was an amazing experience both for Jesus and for his disciples. He was totally uh, enveloped in the presence of God the Father. There was a cloud that came down. It's like Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. You have the person of Moses and Elijah there with him and three disciples and it's a, it's, it's a little confusing for the disciples but otherwise it's, a, it's an amazing event and then he's plunged into the valley below comes down and what's the first thing that happens after the mountaintop experience people are arguing uh, there's confusion and chaos people are freaking out it's just it's that's what he comes to and uh Here's, here's my thing. Okay, so mountaintop experiences. Just think of them in your life. Get your scrapbook out real quick. And what are those things that you would want to show somebody? Let me guess. You know, birthday part, birthdays. And well, let's just start with the birth of a child and birthdays and maybe a wedding day, a new home, new job, new whatever. Graduation ceremonies. Aren't those all just like mountaintop experiences? And you want to live and there's something inside of me that would just love to have that just be every day. But what is, life is what? Life is difficult. You get plunged into the confusion, the chaos, the freaking out. That's what life, you know, and that's everyday stuff, right? So it's just, you know, growing up is part of, you know, if you're, if you're a person who is trying to just live from mountaintop to mountaintop, you will be a very immature person. That's not the way it works. So it's how we do life in the valley. So um, Jesus himself experiences this. Now, the incarnation, ultimately, where you have the eternal Son of God coming into this world that has problems, is all about being plunged into the depths of chaos and confusion and arguing and people freaking out. I mean, that's just... So, you know, God chose to, to do that. Okay. So my just my own story is I... I Went to seminary in 1990 uh, with the idea of coming back into my business so that I would be not a pastor, but a, a leader or a, a better business person and have more, uh, better influence from a Christian perspective in the world, in that world, be a pastor to my employees and to hopefully to my customers in some sense. And so that was my vision. I had that steeped into my soul. And I've been gone from my business, uh, or, you know, hands off pretty much for 18, 20 months, came back into the business, and all I could find was chaos and confusion 
and just awful. And there were days I wanted to kill my employees. That's not what I learned in seminary, but <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. So, I mean, everything on paper, it looks good, but then you, then you get reality. And how do you navigate that? So that's what... Now, what are they arguing about? There's two groups here that are arguing. One is the gatekeepers of religion. They came all the way from Jerusalem. You see how far that was? That's a long ways. They must have a strong interest in making sure that whatever is being taught and done up here in the north of Israel is, you know, uh, up to snuff and is in, it's in their, under their control or so, whatever. So they're, they're there to make sure that things are good. And what they find are these followers of Jesus. Now, three of the disciples went up on the mountain with Jesus, so you've got nine others that are down here. And they have done this before. If you go back into Mark chapter 6, where they were casting out evil spirits and healing people. And so here's, an, here's a time where they can do it, and it turns out to be a botched attempt. So that creates an argument an argument about who has authority to do this, upon what authority are you trying to do it, and then why did it not work if you have such great authority? And that's what Jesus walks into, the chaos of that argument. And uh, the disciples, it says, as, as we read on uh, in the passage, forgot to do one thing, they forgot to pray. So, you kind of get a little hint there as to why it didn't work. And um, they tried maybe just using technique. Well, you know, back when we were, you know, in this other village, all we did was this, and it worked there, so it must work here, and it, it didn't work. And so they're trying to figure out what went wrong themselves. All right, let's get to that next question there, if you can. And that comes out of the context of um, there's the argument going on, but then we find out there's a father and there's a son. And so in verse 20, they brought the son to Jesus. And when the spirit, saw, the spirit that was in this son saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and he rolled around, foaming at the mouth. That is not a pretty sight to see. I mean, whatever that is there. And Jesus asked the boy's father... How do you think, that, but just, I want you to put yourself in the Father's place here. How do you think the Father is feeling right now? And Jesus asked the Father, how long has he been like this? And the Father responds, from childhood, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. And here's where we get that line. The Father says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. To which Jesus says, if you can... And that means, you know, a little bit more than, it's not just a straightforward question. All right, so first thing to notice is that Jesus does not get into the argument. Totally, you've you got to get this. He does, there's an argument going on, and his disciples are part of it. You would expect Jesus to maybe take sides against the, he oftentimes does, against these guys from Jerusalem. He doesn't even bother here. He goes straight to the real issue at hand, which is a father who is hurting because his son is hurting. You get that straight. The, the compassion of Jesus does not really care about winning that argument. He has something bigger in mind. He is drawn into a human personal drama. And it's, he knows 
he knows the human relationship between a father and a son. Now remember, just the echoes of this go back a week to when Jesus was on the mountaintop and he hears the voice of his heavenly father saying to all present, including him, this is my son whom I love. Don't discount that Jesus understood what a father-son relationship was like. He is the essence of a father-son relationship between he and his eternal father. He also had an earthly father, but this is beyond that. So Jesus understands the reality of this situation. Uh, he, He understands how this father must feel. And that's why he gets personal with his comments. How long has he been like this? I want to know. I'm interested in you. I'm interested in him. It's, um, it, it, it tells you a lot about Jesus. One of the reasons I believe in Jesus is because just simply, if for no other reason, the character of Jesus. Just look at him. If he says something, I'm predisposed to believing it's true because he said it. And not, only, not for no other reason. He said it. And look at him. Would he lie to you? <laughs> you know? Well, look at his character coming through. So, Jesus sees this father, and um, you know, I'm going I'm to appeal to you, if you're a parent at least, I'll appeal to you, you know what it looks like to have a child, it, it happens even when they're babies, where you're, you, you don't know what's wrong, you don't know why they're crying, and you're doing everything you can. You've tried all the tricks in your bag to try to make things right, and they're still crying. There's something about a parent that is so, there's that feeling that you're just helpless. In the, in the presence of whatever it is, it's beyond you, and it may be beyond the doctors. And do you know what I'm talking about here? I mean, every parent goes through this at some level. On a scale of 1 to 10, it might be a, you might be a 10. That's really tough. But every parent knows that feeling of helplessness for one that is helpless. And it's not just a helpless one. It's one that you love more than anything. I mean, it seems. So I, when we were um, living in Bellingham, well, actually, what I was, when I was going to seminary, we had uh, our son, our youngest son, who was actually right here this morning. He, he just flew in this morning. Tell you what, the kid's dedicated. He had to be in church to hear his dad preach this morning. Flew in all night from Alaska. And uh, he, he will get something good for me later. I don't know what it will be. But, um, but I, didn't, I wasn't sure he was going to be here. But anyway, when he was four years old, he uh, was playing with some friends. And he fell and he uh, broke his uh, femur. And it was a spiral fracture, which is not the simple kind. And it was uh, just a huge, in our, in our lives at that time, it was a huge event, okay? And looking back on it now, it's not, it's not a big deal. But I'll tell you what, at the time. So I remember uh, I was in Canada when it happened. I was uh, up in Vancouver. And um, I drove home, got the word, drove home. And I remember that night going to, I think it was St. Luke's Hospital, Bellingham, I can't remember. But, and then there he is, and Patty's there, and he's just crying. He's in pain. He is just, he's laying there in bed with a body cast on, in pain. And the doctors have done everything they can do, and all that we can do now is cry cry and pray and ah, that feeling, you know, that's what's going on here. This father is wanting something and he can't seemingly do anything. So Jesus speaks into that, those words of, if you can. 
And he's calling the father out gently on something. And this is where faith has to begin. You have to decide, the first step is to decide that he can. Now we'll set aside a second question here for a second. But I want you to think about you and and your life and the things that are on your list of what God can do and what he can't do. And what Jesus is inviting you to do is to shift everything over into the category of he can. He can. It doesn't matter how big it is, how outlandish it is. He is able. He can do it. Uh, but think, and here's another way to think about it. If you're, if you've got some history with God in prayer, think of the things that you used to pray for, but you just got worn out praying for. Things that have moved off your prayer list onto the, I'm not sure if God even hears me list. And, and just what would it take for you to shift those back over here? This is where it begins. God can. Jesus wants you. He says, everything is possible to the one who believes. He, that's Jesus. Now remember, the character of Jesus, if this was somebody else saying that, I'm not sure I would believe it. Don't believe it because I said it, or your grandma said it, or whoever. Believe it because of the character who, of who spoke it. Jesus spoke it. He says, everything is possible to the one who believes. Everything. Everything. There's nothing that's not possible. Okay? That's the point. And that's where faith has to start. If you don't have that attitude, what I think what the, the conclusion would be is that you're, you're putting things in the category that God can't do, you're limiting what God could do, and you're becoming what psychologists would call you're practicing learned helplessness. And you become conformed and passive towards situations that maybe, we don't, that maybe God wants you to pray into and so that he can demonstrate what he can do. Now, there's, there's, there's things here that make it complicated, which we probably need to go to right now. So there's the can question, which a person of faith will have that God can do anything attitude. And then there's the will question, right? Will he do what he can do? Because he doesn't always do what he can do, right? So, truth with Jesus. When Jesus is, this is on the night when, right before he went to the cross, Jesus makes this statement to those who are calling on him to do something. And he says, do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. A legion in the Roman army, which is what this would refer to, is 6,000 soldiers. So how many, do the math, 72,000 angels. Did you know that in the Old Testament, there was one angel who wiped out 185,000 humans in one hour? I'll just say powerful, more powerful than any bomb or anything that we could come up with. This is, this, Jesus has that at his disposal. He can do it, but he won't do it. But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this hodos, or this way, Greek word hodos, in this way. So in other words, there's the can question, and then there's the, well, when we confuse these two, we get into a deep doo-doo. <laughs> we go into confusion, chaos, freaking out, and bad theology, and all the rest, okay? But just to know that as Jesus walked towards Jerusalem on the road less traveled, he was aware that God could do anything, but that God, it wasn't in God's interest or in Jesus' interest to do, to do 
what could be done. And so for us, and if, if, we could, if we could see what God sees, we might pray because of what God sees, but we don't see what God sees. So, I mean, his, he sees everything, and we see a part, and his will is determined on everything he can see, but we can't see everything he sees, so we have to give in to his will, even though he can do anything. This is the posture of faith. It's, it, so if you get your can and your will mixed up, it, it's bad. Jesus has greater purposes. Uh, we see that here in his life. And um, don't get discouraged. Um, and that's where we, we go now to this great testimony of faith, such as it is, upon the, by the man who says, I believe he makes this statement, I believe, you know, and then you wonder what's next. And here's what, like the disciples earlier might have said, oh, we believe, and they were quick to, and, and we're so strong in our faith. We're so sure of our faith. We know we can heal this man because we have strong faith, and then the man doesn't get healed. But look at this guy. I believe and instead of saying that, he says, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And Jesus picks up on that. That's a prayer. Do you know the disciples forgot to pray? Do you know that this man prays? His prayer is like a mustard seed. You don't have to have really, really strong faith. You have to have authentic faith, not posing faith, not clap-happy faith, just real, honest faith. And he can work with that much, apparently. Just a little bit. So uh, the man offers up his most precious son. He hands him over to Jesus. And then you think, oh, he's instantly healed. No, no, no. Things get really bad. Do you want me to read that part? So um, Jesus commands the spirit to come out of him. And then it says, verse 26, the spirit shrieked, it convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. It, my experience, and if any, any counselors that I've uh, worked with uh, or, or talked about this with would say that usually uh, when people are getting healed, in the, early in the healing process, things get really ugly. You can call it withdrawal symptoms for an addict. Whatever it is in a, in, a, in a family system, when one person starts getting healthy, it causes everybody else to start acting weird. It's just not... He, healing is not... The, it's part of the road less traveled. It really is. It takes tons of courage and faith. And this man, you can just kind of hear him as he's watching this over and over again, not just once, help my unbelief, help my unbelief, help my unbelief. As he's watching his son, I mean, he's giving him over to Jesus, and what's Jesus doing? You know, I mean, it's... And then you have this breakthrough. The spirit is, leaves, the, the boy is limp there, Jesus picks him up by the hand, cool stuff. Do you know this is uh, reflective of Jesus' life where he go, he's going to Jerusalem to die, to suffer and die. That's before the breakthrough of Easter morning. There is, there, I don't know if there is another way. 
I wish there was. If we could take a vote, we'd all vote that there would be, you know, mountaintop to mountaintop. None of this stuff. Life is difficult. God can do anything. Do you hear the words? Life is difficult. God can do anything. If you believe everything is possible, we don't know if it will, if he will. I mean, that's where just more faith is required. So let's just imagine, though, just picture this one. The father, let's go to another father-son relationship where we were just a minute ago. We'll close with this. But the father in heaven, the father in heaven, looking down on the cross, at the cross, where his son is dying, can he save him? And the answer has to be yes. I mean, look at the scriptures. He could send however many angels, whatever he wants to do. He can, he can stop this whole thing, this whole bloody mess. But will he? No, he will not. I mean, do you see the character of Jesus here? I mean, he's living this out. So that when he says something, it's just who he is. But the father, why does he, I mean, it's just so hard. Just think about how much the father loves the son. Don't question that. Please don't question that. But he's not just seeing the son. He's seeing you. He's seeing you. He's seeing individually people. He sees people that he wants to bring home. And he's willing to sacrifice the son whom he loves. He's willing to sacrifice that for you. What a love that he has for you and for me. Now, here's what I want to do. I just want to lead us individually. I'm going to lead you through a prayer, a couple of prayers that come out of this passage. Um, and so get yourself in a prayer posture, if you will. And I'm going to ask you to fill in some blanks. Father, the first thing we want to do is just, at least what I want to do, and what I hope I invite, I hear your invitation, I hear your invitation, Lord, to invite people to move things into that category of you can. And so uh, for all of us here, just quietly in your hearts, identify those things either that you maybe stop praying for or that you've doubted that God could do and get them all over there. That's the invitation. It's an act of faith to do that. And then secondly, and maybe related to that, that phrase, I believe, help my unbelief in regard to be specific. And now, oh Lord Jesus Christ, as we look upon your character and hear the words that come out of your mouth, and by the Holy Spirit, our hearts are convicted by the truth that is there. May we, with faith, embrace the truth that you give us this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.